Josh asked me, as he usually does, for each speaker, he said, what's the, what's the title of your message? And I said, I'm going to speak about one thing, but uh, I don't think it's going to be five minutes. Uh, but before I elaborate on that, let's uh, read from the Word of God. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 132. Uh, it's not the main focus, but you'll see uh, why later we're going to read it. Uh, Psalm 132, it's one of 15 songs that are entitled A Song of Degrees or A Song of Ascents. And Psalm 132 reads, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he sware unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob's, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of this at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let the saints, or let thy saints, shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn away from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a strength, a lamp for mine anointed, the Hebrew is for my Messiah. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself, that is upon the anointed one, the Messiah, shall his crown flourish. Uh, quite a few years ago, if I remember rightly, I think pastor preached a sermon on one thing. Uh, in our Lord's life. Uh, three examples are very well known. Uh, to Martha, who was encumbered about with much serving, the Lord said, Martha, you're encumbered, you are weighed down with much serving, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. How often, like Martha, we serve, uh, but a good servant in those days and even today waits for instructions. That's what Mary was doing. Uh, but not only uh, in the Lord's ministry uh, do we have the phrase, uh, one thing is needful. That to the rich young ruler who came asking, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Uh, the Lord said, one thing thou lackest. He kept the law of Moses, uh, at least he thought he had. Externally he had, but his trust was in his riches. 
one thing is needful. Get rid of the obstacle, said the Lord, that is stopping you from trusting in me. He wouldn't give away his riches as far as we know. And of course, the third example is that of the man at the pool, sent to the pool of Siloam. Uh, he didn't know much, but when uh, his sight was restored, and the Pharisees and others said, give God the glory, we know that this Jesus is a sinner. Whether he be a sinner or not, I know not, said the blind man. But he said, one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. So I, and uh, having heard that sermon, uh, I thought, are there any other examples in Scripture that refer to one thing? So in a sense, pastor gets the credit for this sermon, and we'll, we'll start with uh, Psalm 27. In case I, I, I don't get to the end, uh, the three points, uh, one thing have I desired. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, one thing I do, and Peter in his epistle says, be not ignorant of this one thing. But let's uh, look at Psalm uh, 27. We're not going to go through the whole of the psalm, but uh, very likely, as with many of the other psalms, it was written when David was on the run, possibly from Saul. Most commentators, uh, I think they are right, say uh, he was uh, going away from Absalom, or fleeing from Absalom, uh, who sought his life. Uh, and David uh, uh, put his trust in, in the Lord. Uh, he says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. David didn't know when he was fleeing from Absalom what the outcome would be. Uh, but uh, he trusted in the Lord. And he said, if the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And he refers to his enemies which were many. Remember, it's said of Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 that he stole the hearts of the children of Israel. We think of theft or stealing relating to physical things. Uh, I think uh, a Sunday or two back, uh, Brother Andrew Davis spoke of false prophets from Jeremiah 23 who stole God's words from the people uh, by tickling people's ears, uh, if we do that, and we never should, whether uh, in the pulpit or in Sunday school, then we are stealing God's word from those who need it most. But also, love can be stolen. And Absalom stole the hearts of the children of Israel. Uh, and uh, that's why David says in verse 3, though a horse, though an army should encompass uh, and camp against me. My heart will not fear. The war should rise against me. And he wasn't speaking figuratively. He was speaking literally. Uh, and when you look uh, at Absalom's rebellion, we're not going to look at it in detail. David's greatest enemies were from those of his own tribe and his own uh, family, who was commander of Absalom's army, a former commander of David's army. Uh, Amasa. And who was Amasa? He was none other than David's own nephew. Uh, what a picture of the Lord Jesus uh, in uh, Psalm 40, uh, my own, or Psalm 55 as well. Uh, he that eateth bread with me, said Jesus, hath lifted up his heel against me. Absalom had eaten bread with David. He was David's 
uh, one of David's chief commanders. Uh, he and others had worshipped with David in the Lord's house, and yet uh, he turned uh, against him. A picture of the Lord Jesus. It's been said, and rightly so, that every one of Jesus' 12 disciples, except one, was a Galilean. Which one wasn't? And he came from the tribe of Judah. He came from the town of Kerioth. Jesus and Judas belonged to the same tribe. The others were northerners, but Judas was part of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and yet, uh, in verse uh, uh, 4, the verse we're going to focus on, David, fleeing from Absalom, says one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord. Not, and he doesn't say his safety. He doesn't say the preservation of his life. He doesn't say victory over Absalom. He doesn't say restoration to my rightful throne. But what does he say? One thing have I desired of the Lord. That I will seek after. And the word is to pursue, like that of a hunter, uh, uh, at the success of his hunting, uh, the on the success of his pursuit, his life depends. If he's not successful, no food. But that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David said, one thing I've desired more than anything else, that I might discover more and more of the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Uh, da uh, David loved the house of God. Uh, you find, for example, in 1 Samuel 26, the second time he spares Saul's life. He says, uh, my own people have driven me out of the land, and they said, go and serve other gods. From a young man, David uh, shone because of his, uh, his faith and his love for the Lord. Uh, how old was he when he took on Goliath? Uh, uh, 16, 17, some put it even younger. But what did he say to that giant as he confronted him? He said, you come to me with sword uh, and spear and all the armor. But he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord God of the hosts of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And all Israel will know this day that the battle is the Lord's, that he doesn't need spear or sword uh, to live there. Uh, what a faith of a young uh, boy. Uh, and uh, one can only imagine the many hours that David was looking after the sheep. Being the youngest, he was landed with a job that his brothers didn't want. Uh, was it there that he learnt to play the harp? Was it there that he learnt uh, uh, and sang uh, of the faithfulness and the majesty of God? Because you remember when Saul had his fit, fits of madness, uh, they, sought, they looked for a musician, and one of Saul's counselors or courtiers said, I have seen the son of Jesse. He's skilled in music, and remember, it was before he took on Goliath, the courtier said, a mighty man of valor. Uh, and David loved the house of God. That's partly, mainly, why I read Psalm 132. 
It wasn't written by David, but it was written about David. That Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swear uh, uh, by the name of the Lord that uh, he would no longer sleep through the night uh, until he had found a place for the mighty God of, uh, of Jacob. You remember uh, how it came about. Uh, David, uh, after seven or ten years, has peace at last in his kingdom. And he says to Nathan the prophet, he said, it's not fair. How many of us would say this? He said, I dwell in a beautiful palace. All that God has uh, as his palace is a tent. I've got a magnificent structure. God dwells in a tent. Uh, and before you say, ah, but the tabernacle was quite the tent. It wasn't the tabernacle of Moses' day. That had been destroyed at Shiloh in the days of Samuel. It was inferior to that. And David said, it's unfair that I, an earthly monarch, should have a house grander than uh, the king of heaven and the God who has brought me here. Uh, and he says, uh, I, I, I want to spend time in the house of the Lord. Why? That I may behold the beauty of the Lord. That word beauty doesn't occur very often in the Old Testament. On at least two occasions, it refers to the visible sh shining of God's glory. Or I should say on at least one occasion. I think it does here. Uh, the, uh, the first time it was used was in Psalm 90. Uh, and Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Uh, it begins, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were formed, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. But how does the psalm end? Uh, of course, it's the psalm that says the days of our years are threescore and ten. And if by reason of strength they are fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow and we fly away. And uh, Pastor mentioned this morning how life goes by so quickly. And the psalmist, Moses, found that because he says in that psalm, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. But at the end of that psalm, he says, may the beauty, it's the same word that you have here, may the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and the work of our hands establish thou it. Now you could say that psalm was written by Moses, and Moses knew what it was to have some of the beauty or the glory of God radiating from his face. You remember when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had to put a veil over his face because that reflected glory was too bright. But Moses wanted something more than that. He knew that that glory would fade, and it did fade. But he wanted the loveliness, the graciousness, the beauty of God's character to rest upon him. And David says, I want this one thing more than anything else. I want to behold and ponder and meditate on the beauty of the Lord. The same applies to us. You remember, might remember how in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, uh, uh, throughout his ministry as he did, his footsteps were dogged by those Jews. They believed in Jesus, but they wanted to put uh, Gentiles and Jewish believers under the yoke of the law. Uh, and Paul says, well, he says, God has sent me to be a minister of the new covenant. Not the old covenant, 
which said, do this in order to have eternal life, but the new covenant by which God puts his spirit in the hearts of all who believe in him. And at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, he says, God has given us liberty. We are not under the bondage of the law. Uh, Peter spoke of the law of Moses as a yoke in Acts 15, which he said, our forefathers and we couldn't keep it. Paul found the law of Moses to be a yoke. You remember what he says in Romans 7? He says, the law said, thou shalt, do not, uh, thou shalt not covet. Paul said, that commandment came to me, and however hard I tried not to covet, I found I was coveting. Uh, and that, of course, is a chapter that has the verse that pastors so often have said, that, that, that is a tongue twister, uh, that if I do that, which, which I know I shouldn't do, uh, and then it goes on, evil is present with me. Uh, and the yoke of the law was a burden. But in Matthew 11, what did the Lord Jesus spoke of another yoke, didn't he? He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What did he mean? He meant if they put faith in him, then the day would come. It didn't come immediately, not until the day of Pentecost, when Christ would be living in the life of the believer. You and I might say it's hard to live the life of God, for us to live the life of God. It's easy for God to live the life of God. But isn't that what faith in the Lord Jesus accomplishes? Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that, that in part is what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you. But coming back to 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, we with open face beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, we are changed from glory into glory as by the Lord the Spirit. We can read the law of Moses. We can try to keep the law of Moses in our own strength. And it produces failure and bondage. But Paul said, I have come to see something of the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And as I behold it, he says, I ask the Holy Spirit to show me more of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I meditate upon it, I ask the Holy Spirit to change me, to make me more like my Savior. And in that way, we are changed from one degree of glory into another as by the Lord the Spirit. And David said, one thing have I desired, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord. One thing have I desired, but if we turn to Philippians chapter two, uh, 3, Paul said, one thing I do. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, I did mention earlier that throughout his entire uh, ministry as an apostle and as a preacher of the gospel, Paul, Paul's life, Paul's footsteps were dogged by those uh, and they weren't necessarily unbelievers. They were Jewish believers who resented the fact that he told Gentiles they could be saved without having to be circumcised, without having to keep Jewish dietary laws, without uh, having to submit to the law of Moses or keep the Sabbath day or keep the feasts or the holy days. Uh, and Paul uh, was regarded as a tra traitor, if you like, uh, to the best 
traditions of Judaism. And he refers to this uh, in Philippians chapter 3. He says uh, in uh, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That wasn't good enough for Paul's enemies. They wanted to know why uh, he didn't preach circumcision, why he didn't enforce his converts to keep the law of Moses. Uh, And Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. And then he he warns the Philippians to beware of certain people. But in uh, verse 2, he says, uh, beware of the concision. It's uh, it's another term for circumcision. It refers to those Jewish believers who said, well, and he did say in Acts 15, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. We have the same spirit of legalism uh, today. There will be people in certain quarters that say, if you haven't been baptized then you can't be saved. Well, they've obviously never read or never thought about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I've been baptized. Many of us have been baptized in obedience to the Lord's command. But Peter is quite clear in his epistle that baptism does not put away one single sin. Or Peter's language is, baptism does not cleanse us from the filth of the flesh, our sinful nature. It's the answer of a good conscience towards God. You get your good conscience first, and then uh, uh, as you're convicted of of the need to be baptized, you get baptized. But baptism does not save. You have to have your good conscience first. How do you get your good conscience? Well, read Hebrews 9. Uh, If the blood of bulls and of goats uh, and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, I think it's verse 14 of Hebrews 9, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? You get a good conscience only by trusting in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 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 I think this morning we sang Charles Wesley's hymn. I think together with Anne Can It Be, they're the two greatest hymns uh, that have been written. They are full of scripture. Uh, And there was a line that struck me this morning in that hymn. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Canceled sin means that the debt that we owed God has been taken away. Christ bore the punishment for our sin. But we need to go on from there. If we, if we accept that, then we are saved. But he breaks the power uh, of that sin in our lives. The canceled sin refers to the fact that Jesus died in my place. But we, we can believe that, and yet we can be under the bondage of sinful habits. But Christ in us gives us the power uh, to deal with that sin, the penalty has been paid, uh, that's been cancelled, but uh, he has given us the power. But coming back to Paul, Paul says of his critics, uh, his Jewish enemies, he said, if they want to boast of being circumcised, if if they want to boast of keeping the law of Moses, if they want to boast of all that they have as Jews, Then in verse 4, he says, 
I can boast far more than they. I, I, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day uh, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I wonder why he puts that in. Uh, he's not boasting, but he says what he could boast of. He may have put in Benjamin because he could have said as a Benjamite, if it wasn't for my tribe, then the rest of you Jews wouldn't even exist. Why, why, would, why might he have said that? Well, first of all, uh, the only tribe, the only other tribe that was loyal to the house of David, uh, and pastors reminded us of that, is a tribe of Benjamin. Uh, who was it, humanly speaking, that was used to save the, na the nation of Israel uh, from the wrath of Haman in the book of Esther? Well, I've given the, the, the answer, it was Esther. But what tribe did Esther belong to? You, you, you read Esther carefully. Esther was uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's why Paul says, if I want to boast of my achievements, uh, I'm not just from any tribe, I'm the, from the tribe uh, of Benjamin. And he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, the law of Moses, a Pharisee, kept it in every detail. He says, concerning zeal, uh, and this would have gone down well with uh, Jews who were not uh, uh, saved, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is by the law, blameless. That's how Paul viewed himself up until the time he was saved. But notice what he says in verse 7. What things were gained to me, I counted a loss. In fact, he goes further. He says, everything that I could boast of, whether of my race, whether of my righteousness, whether of my steadfastness in keeping the law. He says, I count it loss. And he says, I still count it loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them, and it's a strong word, I do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Said Paul, I had all those things but I didn't have the Lord Jesus. Uh, is it in Corinthians where Paul says uh, a remarkable thing? Yes, we are Christ's, but Christ is ours. Uh, uh, pastor said this morning, the grace of God, we didn't deserve it. If he, he had forgiven us all our sins, and he has, that's much to thank him for, but that Christ by his Spirit should come and dwell in this heart of mine, in your heart as well, when all we were was wretched sinners, is indeed an act of grace. But Paul uh, goes on to say, we haven't yet got onto that one thing. Paul says, uh, uh, not only is Christ my righteousness, but he says in verse 10, I want to get him to know him more closely, that I may know him, and not just the forgiveness of sins, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection uh, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now that verse, verse 11, might puzzle you. You might say, well, surely all Christians are going to be raised one day if we die, and that's true. Uh, but uh, in, the, in the Greek, uh, that word isn't the usual word for re resurrection, and commentators have debated much about it. 
it really should translate, if by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection from the dead. And you might say, what on earth does that mean? Uh, you remember in Hebrews 11, we have a long list of heroes of faith. And it says at the end, some by faith shut the mouths of lions, others by faith overthrew kingdoms. And we might like that bit, but then it follows, it's followed by the faith of those who suffered, the faith of those who were cast out, who wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, in caves, who accounted the off-scouring uh, off of the earth. And, uh, and Hebrews goes on to say, some were tortured, uh, and some were sawn asunder, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And you might say, how can there be a better resurrection? I can understand that the resurrection of believers is better than the resurrection of unbelievers because of the destiny. Believers that are raised uh, from the dead will be with Christ. Uh, uh, we, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Believe, unbelievers raised fr from the dead are raised for eternal condemnation. But here, and in Hebrews, it's speaking of a distinction in the resurrection of some believers and other believers. In what respect? Uh, we won't turn to 1 Corinthians 15, but if you read that chapter carefully, it's the great chapter of the resurrection. Uh, and Paul says, just as one star differs from another in glory, so also is the resurrection of the body. In Daniel 12, it speaks of those who will be raised from, from the dead, and some, those who turn many to righteousness, will shine as the stars of the morning. Uh, and I, I wouldn't press the point too much, but I think that what Paul is saying, that the resurrection body will be glorious, but that just as some stars shine more brightly than others, there will be believers. Uh, the radiance, the glory that will emanate from their bodies will be greater than that of others. It won't necessarily be the privilege of preachers or those who may be in the public eye. You remember the Lord Jesus saw a widow woman in the temple uh, and all she put in was two mites, and the rich flung their silver and their gold uh, to make a show. And the Lord said, that poor widow has given more to God in God's sight than all the rich men with their hundreds or thousands of shekels. Uh, and I think that's what Paul had in mind when he says, if by any means I might attain and to the out-resurrection from the dead, Paul didn't say to himself, because I'm, I'm an apostle, I'm going to be one of the most glorious, if like, radiant uh, stars uh, in the resurrection. No, he knew that wasn't the case. Uh, and he says, this one thing I do, he says in verse 13, forgetting the things that are behind, forgetting everything that I have been or done for the Lord Jesus, and pressing forth unto the things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
He's using language very, very similar to that uh, of Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us run with patience, with perseverance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And sometimes, as Pastor reminded us this morning, the Christian path can be a lonely one. It can be one full of trials. But in Hebrews 12, the writer goes on to say, uh, in case you become weary and faint uh, in your trials, he says, consider him, consider Jesus, consider him who endured such great contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. Uh, and Paul says, there's one thing I do, forgetting everything I've done. He says, I keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus. Uh, he does that uh, in verse 20. Uh, he speaks of those. Uh, there were preachers. Paul, of course, wrote this letter uh, from prison. And there were certain preachers uh, that reveled in the fact that at last that apostle is out of the way. He's founded too many churches. He's written so many letters. Now it's our chance to shine. Uh, and we let him know what a good job we are doing while he's languishing in prison. Paul was a better man than that. He said, never mind. He says, they may be preaching Christ out of envy, uh, but he says, Christ is preached and I will rejoice. But he said uh, in verse 17, he said, uh, verse 18, and he's not talking about unbelievers. He says, many walk, uh, of whom I have told you often and tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. They preach for what they can get out of it. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. But Paul didn't let that get him down. He says in verse 20, and I love verse 20, our conversation, the word really means citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what kept Paul going? He kept his eyes on the prospect of the Lord's Jesus coming back at any time. Because he says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change this vile body, not a good translation, this body of, uh, of humiliation. Uh, I, I don't want to rub salt in pastor's wounds, but uh, uh, he, he's, he's, he's found this week that however willing the spirit is, the weakness of the body sometimes overcomes the resolve of the mind. And I was saying to Brian early in the week, we've, we've all been there. We've all got to that point where we realize, yes, there comes a time when the body says, you've pushed me so far, you can go no further. This body sometimes, that is the body of our humiliation. Uh, God uses it maybe to bring our uh, male pride uh, to heal. But Paul says, the day will come when the Lord Jesus will return and we, it, we will, he will change this body of, hum, of our humiliation that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. When you get home, read Revelation 1 and see what the effect of the glory of the Lord Jesus had upon the Apostle John. He fell at his feet as dead. He couldn't 
stand the sight of that glory, that our body will one day be fashioned like unto his body of glory. And in case you doubt it, notice the end of verse 21. According to that working or that power, whereby he's able to subdue all things, even to himself. God, God's power is unlimited. Pastor mentioned this morning, sometimes, uh, and I've met Christians, yes, they're saved, they believe that Christ was mighty enough to die for their sins uh, and to pay that debt. But they're not so sure whether he created the world as he did, uh, as uh, Genesis 1 says, he did. Uh, which is harder? Uh, the Lord Jesus asked his critics a question, which is harder? To, to raise this man uh, on a pa uh, palsy on a bed or to say thy sins be forgiven thee? Only God could do both. And one day God will change this body of ours with all its aches and pains, with all its limitations, uh, with indwelling sin. And we'll be like the Lord Jesus. Or as John says, we shall see him as he is. One thing I, I, I have desired, said David, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate upon the beauty and the fragrance of the Lord Jesus. Uh, one thing I do, said Paul, I keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus. I look for the day of his coming, and because I'm looking for him to come, at the same time, I'm working and I press forward. Everything I do is done in view of the fact that he could come at any time, and I want his approval and no one else's. And very briefly, what about Peter? Be not ignorant of this one thing. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of scoffers in the last days, and they are surely present, even in the professing church, that will say, 2 Peter 3 verse 4, there will be scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, quite a few years ago, I was speaking in Aberdeen. It was a Friday night meeting. People from various churches came there, and there were two ladies. They thanked me for the message at the end, and they said they went, uh, as it happened, uh, to a church in Wales, uh, and uh, I think there was an interim vicar. Uh, they were between vicars, and they were quite upset because this particular vicar had poured scoff, uh, poured scorn upon uh, the idea of the Lord Jesus coming again. Well, I said, uh, the next time he takes uh, communion or the Eucharist, uh, uh, see if he quotes those words from uh, 1 Corinthians 11. As often as you drink, eat the bread and drink the cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come. Or oh, I said, if he leads you in reciting the Lord's prayer, uh, point out to him those words, thy kingdom come. Can't have a kingdom coming unless the king comes. But we shouldn't be surprised because Peter says there would be those uh, who uh, mock and say, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, and in verse 5, Pastor mentioned the king this morning, Ahaz, who was ignorant. Uh, he was willfully ignorant. And you have that phrase in verse 5. This they willingly are ignorant of. Uh, and Peter says uh, uh, in verse 4, Part of the mockery is this world has gone on in the same sweet way. It, it, things have gone on as they always have gone on. No, says Peter in verse 5, there's been judgment. The world was flooded. 
things have not always got, gone on the same sweet way. But he says the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But verse 8, one thing. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. A thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack or negligent concerning his promise. He doesn't break his word like, uh, like human beings do. Uh, there's a reason, says Peter, why he hasn't come yet. He is, verse 9, he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You and I may be looking, and we should be looking, for the coming of the Lord Jesus. But how many of us uh, have reason to give him thanks that he didn't come before we put our trust in the Savior? Uh, I've often said, I'm glad that God didn't take my first no or my second no as being my final answer, and that he waited until I came to put my trust in him. But says Peter, the day of the Lord, verse 10, will come like a thief in the night. Everything that men have lived for and put their trust in and their hopes in this world, in verse 10 he says, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and everything in it, its works, shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things, material things, will one day be dissolved. Says Peter, shouldn't we be living for the things that are eternal? What manner of persons should we be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God? Uh, and then he says in verse 13, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The Lord Jesus said, we can save, and don't get me wrong, we should provide for our households. But uh, the Lord said, don't lay up treasures. Don't make your life's mission to get as much as you can. Lay not up treasures on earth where moth and rust doth con that does corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And you know, you and I may have witnessed the people, uh, as far as we know, the seed's been sown on barren ground, but how many have come to trust in the Savior years after, and maybe when you and I are in glory, the Lord may say, you, you spoke this word, didn't seem to bear fruit at the time, but they did come, and that seed later germinated, laying up treasure in heaven, the Lord knows everything. He knows why we do it. He knows what we don't know. The consequence of our faithfulness. What did Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? He said, in the morning, sow thy seed. And at evening, don't hold your hand back because you don't know which seed will prosper, whether this or that. Uh, in other words, Solomon said, God and God alone sends the rain, causes the seed to germinate. As far as farmers are concerned, they do the work, but God has put life in that seed. And it's the same with the seed of God's word. 
if we sow it, if we are faithful, we are not asked to cause the seed to germinate. One plants, another waters, but God and God alone gives the increase. So sow the seed of the gospel wherever you have the opportunity. You don't know which seed will bear fruit uh, or not, but he does, and he will cause it to germinate. And maybe there'll be many surprises when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It might be similar to that of Matthew 25, where the Lord says, you did that to me. You, you fed me. You visited me. You, 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 you clothed me. And we might say, Lord, I never knew uh, anything about that. I thought it was wasted. But he knows. And Hebrews 6 says, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love done for him. One thing I have desired, the beauty of the Lord, one thing I do, press in towards the mark, keeping my eyes on the Lord Jesus, and one thing I should not be ignorant of, that he is coming back. And when he comes back, then all the gold and silver of this world will mean nothing, but Christ will be everything. Uh, I've spoken longer than Darren does, but I trust it's been of, of some blessing. Uh, have a look up those one things, uh, and maybe may we be as single-minded as David, Paul, and Peter were in seeking to live for the Lord Jesus. We'll sing our last hymn, uh, which will come up uh, on the screen. And then I wonder if I could ask our brother Andrew Davis to close in prayer uh, after we've sung our final hymn.
We praise you for the message you through prayed, our God. We praise you for the person that they pointed to, the beauty and the glory of thy Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise thee for him, our God, and we praise thee for every saved soul in Bethany tonight. We pray for any who might be outside of Christ, who've never trusted him as their Saviour, that they might turn to him, knowing that he is the only answer to this world's problems, that he is the answer to the problem of eternity. We all face, other than with Christ, a death and a separation from God that lasts for all eternity. We pray that someone might turn to him tonight, realising their need of a saviour. We thank thee, our God and Father, for Andrew's ministry and for his studying of the word. And we thank thee for the things we have heard today. We pray that you would bless them to us and bless us in this coming week, we pray. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.